case is submitted. We'll hear argument next to number 001045, TRW Inc. versus uh, Adelaide Andrews. Mr. Nager. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In this case, the Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit held that the statute of limitations on a claim of improper disclosure under the Fair Credit Reporting Act does not commence until the plaintiff discovers her injury, as opposed to the the date of the improper disclosure. In doing so, the Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit did not parse the language of the statute of limitations that is in the Fair Credit Reporting Act, but rather said that language was not sufficiently expressed to overcome a presumption in favor of a discovery rule that the Ninth Circuit held is read into that statute and all federal statutes. When did the injury occur here? The, in, the, the, the injury uh, for each imp- alleged improper disclosure would have occurred on the date of the disclosure, alleged improper disclosure, Justice O'Connor, although the, some of the damages. Disclosure from, to who? I mean, when, when exactly did the injury? Well, there were four uh, allegedly improper disclosures uh, in, at issue in this case. Uh, the first uh, was in uh, Jul- July of 1994. And when that disclosure uh, was made, uh, it uh, uh, revealed disclosure uh, to some third party. To the third party, and the, and the first one here was to a bank. And and the uh, person injured may never know about it. They they might not know about it, although the the way these reporting systems work, if they ever actually apply for credit themselves and they're denied, they will automatically know about it. Which of course is what happened to the respondent in this case. She didn't know about the disclosure. But it's a two-year statute of limitations. That's correct. And the statute expressly states that the uh, action must be filed within two years of the date upon which liability arises. Is this the type of statute that depends largely on private enforcement to implement it? Well, it, it, it does have private causes of action. The Federal Trade Commission, of course, also has authority to enforce a statute through cease and desist orders, through civil penalties. The, I mean, the, but in general, I think you would look at this as one that envisions private enforcement. A- absolutely, Justice O'Connor, and we don't dispute that. But what it does envision is private enforcement within two years of the date of disclosures. That's what the statute expressly says on its face. It says the action can be brought, but if it's going to be brought, it has to be brought within uh, two years from the date upon which liability arises. And in plain English, as well as under the terms of this statute, if there is liability, it arises upon the date of the improper disclosure. We know that in plain English, the term arise means come into existence, originate. And we know under this statute, section 616 and 617, which specify what a defendant's liability can be, the statute equates liability with the failure of a defendant to comply with a requirement What about of the, the argument that the plaintiff is in harm? The plaintiff may not be harmed by the disclosure, so there may have been a violation of the statute, but no claim for damages because nothing bad has happened to the plaintiff. So you have to wait until something bad happens to the plaintiff. I don't think that's what the statute says, uh, Justice Ginsburg. The statute says that liability arises upon an improper disclosure. Liability it's, for what? Uh, in if the, you're not damaged. 
Well, in this case, the plaintiff sought injunctive relief, punitive damages, and actual damages, as well as if they prevailed uh, at trial for attorneys. Nominative, uh, nominal damages uh, and punitive damages? Well, it, it's unclear under the statute whether you can get nominal damages. Certainly, the statute expressly states that in the case of an alleged willful violation of the statute, which is what the plaintiff in this case alleged, you can get punitive damages. And it, this, the case law also allows for a plaintiff to seek injunctive relief. It, let, let me clarify what the injury is, Justice Ginsburg. Maybe this will, will assist both you and Justice O'Connor. What this statute does is it's the, the credit reporting companies have computer databases that compile information about uh, credit uh, reporting histories of individuals. Uh, and it, it, it makes that database available to subscribers banks, insurance companies, and the like. And an, a, a creditor can go onto that database, just like your law clerks can go on Westlaw, uh, and pull off information. And when they pull that information off, if there weren't reasonable procedures in place to prevent them from improperly pulling information off, that would be an improper disclosure, which would injure the person because it would invade their privacy and reveal confidential information about themselves. Under state law, they possibly would have a claim for invasion of privacy or if there was inaccurate information in the database uh, for defamation of character. What this statute did was it created a federal right uh, against uh, improper disclosure in the absence of reasonable procedures of people's credit history. Just out of curiosity, what, what are the statute of limitations applicable to state actions for, let's say, a trade libel, I, I suppose? Somebody gives out inaccurate information about, uh, about the uh, financial standing of a particular person or company. I don't How know. Those statutes run. Do I, I, I don't run from from the date of the libel or from the date that uh, that the person finds out about. At, at the time of enactment of this statute, the t- the statutes of limitations of which I'm aware of, its state law ran from the date of the of the disclosure, not from the date of discovery. That was typical in the uh, 1969 1970 time frame for invasion of privacy claims and for defamation claims. And we also know that this uh, uh, statute is one of six titles of the Consumer Credit Protection Act, and we know that each of the statutes of limitations in those other five titles run from the date of alleged violation. We would have been sure about that if the language in the initial bill, which was the date of the occurrence of the violation, if that language had been used. Since Congress chose not to use that language, which would have been clear, uh, it seems to me that the phrase that they did use when liability arises is ambiguous. Well, I, I, I understand the, the point, Justice Ginsburg, but let me uh, make the case for why that's not a correct conclusion to draw from the premise. Uh, it obviously would have been simpler if they had used the language from the date of violation. But they used a phrase that means the same thing. And when they made the change, they issued... We know it means the same thing. We know it means the same thing because every time this court has had a case that has used the term arise, it has said that means the date upon which the event happens, not the date upon which someone discovers it later. And we know in Section 616 and 617 of this statute that liability is defined by reference to the acts of the defendant. And we also know that there is an explicit exception in Section 618, the statute of limitations provision, which does expressly refer to a discovery rule, but it says that the discovery rule is applied in the case of a willful and material misrepresentation of a disclosure required by the statute. And the strong implication 
from the inclusion of an express reference to the discovery rule and the exception is that the general rule doesn't include a discovery rule. Well, our previous cases haven't looked at li- when liability arises. You're absolutely there, right. some other noun before the arise. The, the, the other cases that the Court has had have said cause of action arises. Do you think anything turns on that? No, I don't. And I, don't. I, I, I would I point you to the Court's decision in the Bay Area Laundry case, which was dealing with the Multi-Employer Pension Plan Amendments Act. That statute, like this statute, uh, although it used the phrase cause of action arise, had a six-year uh, limitation period from the date the cause of action arose or, alternatively, three years from the date of discovery of the cause of action. And this Court, looking at the primary statute of limitations provision, said that reflects the standard rule of statute of limitations law, that the statute of limitations commences when the cause of action is complete, not upon discovery. Let, let me ask you, um, the, the case is a little bit difficult because we're not quite sure of the of the boundaries and dimensions of the negligence cause of action that was alleged here. And I assume you're, of course, contesting liability. Um, I, I take it you, you do concede, you must concede because of the statute, that there is a general duty on the part of the reporting agencies and TOW not to be negligent in the performance of its statutory obligation. Yes. Uh, so we can, I guess, then consider the case based on a supposed cause of action where there is negligence and there is injury. Yes, just as the e- court. Even though in this case, I'm, I'm sure you would contest that you would say there was no negligence. Th- that is correct. But the court can also assume, since these are the allegations in this case, for purposes of considering this issue, you could consider that the failure to maintain procedures was, in fact, intentional, because they have, in fact, uh, proceeded under the under uh, the provision of the statute, which pro- prohibits intentional noncompliance with the statute, because they've alleged uh, a right to punitive damages and intentional noncompliance in the Ninth Circuit, uh, and remanding this case to the, to the trial court, said the claim's not barred by the statute of limitations, and they should have the right to proceed uh, on their allegations, including their claim for punitive damages. So you could consider... Under either section of the statute, we would say, as they themselves conceded in their briefs to the Ninth Circuit, they said Mrs. Andrews was per se damaged when the, her privacy was invaded by the disclosures. Now, they've made an actual damages argument in this court. That's not the argument they were making in the court below. What they were saying in the court below is what would be uh, assumed from their complaint and would have been assumed in any action at common law where someone was alleging invasion of privacy or defamation, that their injury occurred upon the date of the alleged improper disclosure, although they may have suffered some dam- additional damages or more damages or all of their damages at a later point in time. You're saying in that respect it's just like the common law defamation. Uh, the, the minute the, the defamatory statement is out, your, your, uh, your injury is, is, is complete for purposes of a cause of action. For purposes. That's, that's your only point there. That is correct. Let me, let me move for a second and, and explain why the Ninth Circuit's uh, importation of a discovery rule into this statutory scheme makes little sense. It's in the nature of this statutory scheme and the subject matter that it's dealing with that the claims that this statute can give rise to become stale very quickly. The reason is, is all of the information that's critical to presenting one of those claims is not in the hands of the plaintiff. It's either in our computer database 
or in the records of the creditors who the credit reporting agencies give the information to. And that's why when Congress passed this statute, it said that there were going to be certain disclosures that it was going to require either the credit reporting agencies to make or the creditors to make. But it also specified, uh, because of concerns about the burdens of record-keeping, quite finite periods of time by which those records would have to be kept. So at the time the statute was passed, a credit reporting agency only had to keep a list of who a disclosure was made to for six months, and now, as amended in 1996, they only have to keep it for a year. And at the time the statute was passed, there was no requirement placed upon uh, a subscriber to our database, one of the creditors, for any time period they had to keep their own records. Now, in 1976, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act was passed, and the Federal Reserve Board promulgated regulations requiring that a creditor keep records of any action it takes to deny credit for up to 25 months. But the fact of the matter is, because of, of the enormous amounts of information that are retained, the record retention policies of credit reporting agencies and creditors, pursuant to guidance received from the Federal Reserve Board and the Federal Trade Commission, record retention, we, we get rid of those records at the end of two years as a credit reporting agency, and the banks get rid of them after 25 months. So the claims — I don't understand. You mean if I apply for credit and TRW checks me out, uh, they only interested in the last two years? The underlying credit information is preserved, as long as it's not negative, forever. If it's negative, the statute prohibits the uh, credit reporting agencies for retaining it for more than seven months. But remember, what the the claim is is an improper disclosure. So what you have to know is is who is the information disclosed to and when. And and uh, that's a separate data uh, field. And under the statute, that list has to only be maintained for a year after 1996 by the credit reporting agency. So the only way to find out that a disclosure has been made is either within a year, or we actually keep it for two years, because in the case of an employment application, you have to keep it for two years, or from the creditor, and they only keep it for 25 months. What that means is, is that claims that aren't discovered within two years that would be preserved under this statute, the underlying records that would, would reliably prove whether a disclosure has been made and contained in inaccuracy won't exist. Well, but if we affirmed the Ninth Circuit, you might change your policies, might you not? <laughs> no, as a matter of fact, Mr. Chief Justice, I don't think we would. And the, the reason we wouldn't is, for example, California has already, under its state uh, consumer code, changed its statute of limitations to be a discovery rule, but the credit reporting agencies haven't changed. And the reason is we, we have no desire to facilitate the uh, bringing of causes of action. I mean, I'm going to be honest and candid with the court about it. And the information is expensive to retain. So the other states have changed the way <laughs> California has. I, I don't know the answer to that uh, question, uh, Justice Ginsburg. I do uh, know uh, from uh, my client and partners who practice in this area regularly that their impression is no state has a statute of limitations that is longer, uh, I'm sorry, no, no state has a record-keeping requirement that exceeds the federal record-keeping but, requirement. But one of the arguments you make, if I remember correctly, was the Ninth Circuit is, is a large area, so we whatever they say is going to govern for the nation because we can't keep our books one way for California, another way for someplace else. But California is a pretty large state. If, if 
you are saying, well, California's done it. It doesn't bother us. We go our merry way. Why wouldn't you do the same thing under the Ninth Circuit's decision? Well, uh, we would go in response to uh, the Chief Justice's question. As long as the federal law or state law doesn't require us to keep the records any longer than the present one-year requirement, we're not going to keep the records for any longer. Well, then this, this, whether it's a discovery rule or whether from the date of the violation doesn't matter as far as your record keeping. As far as the record keeping, what I would suggest is it would leave the courts and our clients to the extent that claims are asserted after the records are gone, it'll be left, we will be left defending against uh, claims that are based upon quite unreliable evidence and the courts will be left adjudicating claims that are based upon quite unreliable evidence because the underlying documents won't exist. And the reason that I would like to make that point to the Court, uh, Justice Ginsburg, is because the very most fundamental purpose of a statute of repose, of the repose aspect of a statute of limitations, is to prevent society and its courts from being burdened with claims that can't be reliably proved. But there's and an argument that you really save those records. You shouldn't throw them away. No, I don't think so, uh, Justice Stevens, because no one disputes in this case what Congress contemplated in the record-keeping requirements. And my point to no, the No, I'm talking about your exposure to state causes of action where they have a discovery rule that your exposure runs beyond the two years. The, the, it seems to me you would have an interest in keeping records that would disprove unmeritorious claims. Well, uh, the, the, uh, I think the answer to that is, is no. They would also prove meritorious claims. That's, that's, that's right. true, question, too. Which which is the greater number. <laughs> and I think the, the answer, I, I can't tell you uh, that I, uh, I have actual empirical information. My client would tell you <laughs> that the number of inaccurate disclosures is de minimis relative to the number of accurate proper disclosures. That's why we maintain reasonable procedures. But I can tell you this, and I think this is the issue in this case, is how long did Congress contemplate that we would keep those records for? And what statute of limitations did Congress correlate with those record-keeping requirements? Because when asking what could Congress have intended through this statute of limitations rule, when it only said that we had to keep the records for six months in 1970 and for a year in 1996, it couldn't possibly have been contemplating that it would create a statute of limitations that would produce unreliable claims uh, for the court. That the more, but much the more. But statute of limitations, I thought, was two years. The statute, yes, because so the statute. That's more than seven months or a it, year. It understandably gives the plaintiff some time to commence their lawsuit. Even though you can say, uh, we don't have the records after whatever is. The, the time period, the lo- per- statute of limitations is longer than the required record keeping. That's correct. But there's nothing that prevents you from keeping the records. Nothing other than lots of expense. Do we. We do have a federal agency in this picture, the FTC. They know something about credit. Do we owe them any kind of respect? I, I, th- I think the answer is you plainly do not owe them deference in the Chevron sense because they don't have rulemaking power uh, and they're not the only agency charged with the administration of this statute. Uh, and I don't think that you owe them Skidmore-level respect because the fact of the matter is that the first time they've articulated this position is in their brief in this case. They don't address the language of the statute other than to say, well, other words and other statutes have been cons- have, have, haven't foreclosed the importation of a discovery rule, and so perhaps it would be appropriate for the Court to import one here. And we would suggest to the Court that the language of this statute is very clear, 
It may not be perfectly clear, Justice Ginsburg, but the phrase liability arise has a plain English meaning which corresponds very naturally with the liability provisions of Section 616 and Section 617 and the overwhelmingly strong negative implication of the misrepresentation exception, which has an express reference to a discovery rule. And as you noted, Justice Ginsburg, both the Senate and the House bills had a date of violation language and the conference committee report, which changed that language and added the misrepresentation exception, commented that its action was taken only for the purpose of adding the misrepresentation exception, not for changing the underlying meaning of the basic statute of limitations. In, in the, at, the, at, at common law, as I recall, I think under California statute, uh, in defamation actions, the statute began to arise from the date of the statement, from the date of the defamation. That's correct. And I assume that one rationale for that was because if the injured party doesn't discover uh, the statement for, for two or three years, it's necessarily diminished and any remediation is minor. Uh, is, is, uh, assume, and assume that is the rationale. Does that apply to you or not? Um, does, the, does, the, does the fact that the erroneous credit information was given two or three years ago uh, in most cases uh, — uh, diminish its its injurious nature. I, I think I'm not in, sure in some I can say that. I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to think. With, how with respect to just a pure improper disclosure, um, it may. Um, I'm not sure I know the answer uh, to the question. What I can say, and I think this uh, may not answer your question, but I think it's important for you to know, is that uh, if in you, a case of identity theft has occurred here. Uh, the, uh, our individual consumer who isn't aware of the disclosure, they will find out. They may not find out in a month. They may not find out in six months. But once the a report is issued in a false to a, to a person uh, who isn't the uh, consumer, if, if the consumer later applies for credit and they're denied credit, they have to be told by the creditor that denies them credit why they're denying them credit and where they got the consumer credit report from, and then they can go check on our database as to what actually is on the database. I take it what's implicit in your argument is that if they are not given notice that they have been denied credit within two years, chances are not very great that they're going to get that notice after two years, isn't it? No, no, they may, because they may not apply for credit within two years. Well, I know, but in terms of probabilities, isn't I, I thought that's what you were assuming. No, no, what, what, I'm, what I'm suggesting uh, to the Court is that uh, there are improper disclosures that might not be discovered within two years. But if there is a disclosure which adversely impacts an individual's credit rating and their desire to obtain credit, they will find out about the fact that their credit has been impaired when they do apply for credit, whether it's within the two-year period or not. Now, they won't know because the records won't exist any longer who that uh, uh, credit information, what other creditors that, in, that information right. was given to, but the underlying data about uh, uh, will be in the database that, uh, about what their credit is and why their credit is being adversely impacted. That, that was well, the point I was making. I, I know, but going back to Justice Kennedy's question, I, I mean, you're, you're saying that there certainly are going to be cases uh, in which the two years will have passed uh, and then specific injury will arise. And they'll have a claim about that specific injury 
if the specific injury is in year three, I was denied credit. Because to, to, in order for that credit to be denied, there's going to be a new credit report that's requested. That'll be a new disclosure. And if the new uh, 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 request for credit is denied uh, because of something in the credit record that reflecting the, the fact of earlier multiple applications for credit that have been denied, they have to be told that, and they have right. to be told who gave it to them. That's why I'm saying, th- th- if you look at the claims in this case, the uh, two claims that are subject to this Court's review right now are the oddball claims. They're the improper disclosure claims, not the inaccuracy claims. Uh, there's no doubt the respondent had a, had the, found out within the two years and thus had the ability to timely bring a claim about when she was actually denied credit herself. That was the point I was trying to make. What happens to a person, if you're right, uh, who um, finds out three years later, three years later she's denied credit? And the reason was because three years ago the company Sears got a report that had all kinds of incorrect information in it or whatever. Is that person without any remedy? Totally. I'm, I'm not sure I understand. Well, what happens she fi- she is, let's suppose. When does she apply for credit? That's she, in year one, you do a credit report. You have 19 things you're not supposed to disclose, old arrest records, uh, old bankruptcy records, do everything wrong. All right, you send it off to Sears. She doesn't actually apply until year eight to get credit from Sears. Sears goes to its files, looks up this old report, says no credit. Now, does she have any remedy at all? If she applies in year eight, she'd have a, a remedy for the uh, credit that she was denied in year eight. She, yeah, was, she can sue who? She could sue you? She could sue the, the uh, credit reporting agency for inaccurately uh, uh, disclosing it. If I'm understanding you correctly, there's a new report this, the, that's issued. The, your, your, customer, your client deals with Sears. He didn't say there was one. a new report. I'm oh, I'm sorry. I misunderstood. If there's not in year one, and they never see Sears again. In year eight, the credit is denied. Is there any remedy for the person who was denied the credit? In the absence of a willful misrepresentation, not, not under this statute. In, it's in, unlikely, of course, that Sears is going to be using an eight-year-old report uh, without asking again, and you'd probably give the same information it, again. It's, it's almost inconceivable that they wouldn't ask again, uh, Why would, and, and it's also uh, probably slightly less inconceivable, but still relatively inconceivable. They still have the records because it's in their interest, and I'm sure they have the record retention policies to abandon them as well. Thank, thank you, Justice Scalia. Let me uh, move quickly to the presumption that the Court of Appeals applied. Um, it's, it's wrong, and it's wrong for two reasons. Uh, first, insofar as they uh, apply. What, what, precisely what presumption is it? I'm sorry, Mr. Chief Justice. The, the Ninth Circuit in this case said that in the absence of an express statement by Congress, uh, it would uh, imply a discovery rule into this statute, uh, into this statute, irrespective of the particular words this statute chose to use. And there, so there's a basic, there's two aspects to the Ninth Circuit's ruling. One is that there, a default rule will be a discovery rule. And secondly, that they'll apply that default rule in every case under every federal statute unless the statute expressly uh, refers to discovery for the basic statute of limitations rule. With, with respect to the, their clear statement rule, uh, this, neither this court nor any other court of appeals uh, that I'm aware of has equated a statute of limitations with a retroactive law, with a waiver of sovereign immunity, or with any of the areas of law in Anglo-American jurisprudence where this court has said that it will require a specifically clear statement from Congress uh, 
in order to in, uh, accept the proposition that Congress had a particular intent. All of the courts of appeals uh, that have embraced a discovery rule as a default rule have said in the silence of Congress, not in the ambiguity of Congress. So you're not asking us to uh, say, no, there's no discovery rule. But what you're saying is you can find an Congress otherwise intent, intended uh, from something that's not an express negation. Our, our primary position in this case is that this statute, when you look at the term liability arise, when, when the Court looks at the misrepresentation exception, when it looks at the definitions of liability in Section 616 and 617, the only reasonable construction of this statute is that the basic statute of limitations rule is the traditional but, complete But all that the Court must do to hold in your favor is to say you've got an express misrepresentation exception, then that's it. That's correct. Uh, we would also say if the Court uh, chose to decide what kind of default rule should be applied uh, in, in, this, in this case or in federal cases generally, that the Ninth Circuit's opinion vastly overstates the support and authority for using a discovery rule as a default rule. This Court, for 150 years at least, has said that the traditional rule is the complete cause of action rule. This Court has made exceptions to the complete cause of action rule in the cases of fraud, in the uh, case of the uh, Federal Employers Liability Act, and in the, in, the, in the context of medical malpractice claims in the uh, 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 Federal Torch Claims Act. But both in Kubrick, dealing with the Federal Torch Claims Act, both the majority and the dissent in that case said that the general rule is an injury rule, not a discovery rule. And as Justice Stevens pointed out in his dissent, an injury rule would be the thing that makes the most sense in the commercial context. And the debate in that case was simply about, in the peculiar context of medical malpractice claims, what should the discovery — the United States in that case didn't contest that a, that a discovery rule shouldn't apply. And the question was, what kind of discovery rule? Should apply now. It is true that a number of, of courts of appeals and Justice Ginsburg, when you were on the D.C. Circuit, you wrote one of the opinions, uh, said that in the late 1980s, in the wake of Kubrick, uh, a number of federal courts of appeals had in fact adopted discovery rules as default rules in, in statutory silence. Uh, I would suggest to you that, that Congress has written uh, reams of United States Code against the traditional rule, not against the discovery rule, that once you enter into the debate, into the notion of using a discovery rule as a default rule, you run into exactly the kinds of problems that the Court faced in Clare and in Rotello, where then is, well, which discovery rule do we use now? Is it Thank you, Mr. Nager. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Henderson, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Looking at the statute at issue, there are two parts to it. The first part is the main part that provides that under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, the two-year limitations begins when liability arises. It is quite correct for you to begin with the statute, but just to uh, carry over the very last point. Uh, The Ninth Circuit was wrong, wasn't it, when it said the general federal rule is that a federal statute of limitation begins to run and a party knows or has reason to know of the injury. I mean, that's... That's just not the general federal rule, is it? That, that is a rule that's been adopted by many circuit courts of appeal around the country in Cotta and in the Con- Connors case. Including the D.C. Circuit. It, that's correct. Yes. It, it's, it's certainly not the rule of this court, is it? I don't know that it's the rule of this court. That's what we're here to answer today in part. So, well, it's so, not so, what so, we said in Holmberg. 
In that was a much more limited case. Holmberg and the Ninth Circuit gave it credit for. That's correct. And, I, and I'm not here to defend the articulation of the judgment by the Ninth Circuit. I, I believe that uh, uh, the judgment was correct, but for reasons that can be much better explained. But, but I sidetracked you on the statute, and I think that is the right place to begin. Thank you. Uh, and there are the two parts. The first part is the liability arises language, which generally applies. The second part is an estoppel provision, and a very liberal one at that, in that it calls for a complete renewal of the limitations period, not merely suspension, which is the normal rule of federal law. So it is a very liberal estoppel provision enacted by Congress that should in no way derogate the application of the normal provision, the liability arises language. That, that to me, is one of the hard parts of this case. Uh, it's not quite expressio unius ex- exclusio alternative, but it's close. And Congress did consider whether or not the, um, the, the rule that the statute begins when the injury arises ought to be modified, and it did modify it for a misrepresentation, but not otherwise. And that's, it seems to me, a very difficult problem for you to overcome. Well, Justice Kennedy, I believe that when you consider the misrepresentation exception, what, what it is is it is a very um, additive provision that says that if there is an intervening misrepresentation by a credit reporting agency during the running of a, of a normal limitations period, then there is complete renewal upon discovery of that intervening misrepresentation, not merely suspension, which is the normal federal rule, as this Court has recognized, at least members of this Court have recognized, for example, in Chardon versus Soto in 1983 in the dissent. But the, the fact that Congress went out of its way to say, if, if this particular type of, of egregious misconduct arises, which is not the normal misconduct that the statute is meant to address, but this particular new type of egregious misconduct arises, then we're going to have complete renewal when that is discovered. That really what is an added. What does the statute say this during thing? It just, you, you put a lot of words into it, but all that it seems to say is that, the, that if there's a misrepresentation, the statute doesn't run, period. No, it says that the, that the limitations period shall begin from two, and shall run from for two years from the discovery of the misrepresentation. Where is this provision? That it is, it's shown on page one of the blue brief, for example, and it's it's a very long provision that takes up the bulk of the statute at issue. It does, it says, but still is an exception from the, ba- the basic prohibition. It, it uses the word except, but it is clearly an additive provision that, and the odd thing about this is that uh, the four courts of appeals that have misconstrued the statute, in my view, have looked at this and have said that which is clearly additive should be read so as to subtract from the main provision in, in a substantial way. And it makes no sense that when Congress intended to simply add something that is clearly for the benefit of consumers and that provides two full years upon the discovery of an intervening deception, should somehow be read to truncate the normal provision. Well, the reason that I think I'm having such difficulty with it is because, on your theory, the statute doesn't begin to run till discovery anyway. So you have to imagine a case where the only way the thing didn't begin till discovery, then this proviso is supposed to be doing some work? What could it be? I mean, it seems you have to think of very weird cases, uh, very unusual cases, before you could imagine a situation where the proviso would serve any function at all on your theory, which well, is it doesn't run till discovery anyway. Justice Breyer, they are discovery of two different things. Just as um, 
for example, the Seventh Circuit's Cotta decision, uh, which was written by Judge Posner, clearly makes a distinction between the injury discovery rule, which is an accrual rule, and equitable estoppel, which, ex- which is used normally to suspend the running of a statute of limitations after it has begun. Well, the injury accrual rule has to do with the discovery of the injury commencing the limitations period. Equitable estoppel has to do with discovering the deception or the wrongdoing on the part of the — That, of course, is true. But it's very hard to see how a a, a deception could be a material deception where the person is fully aware of the underlying liability. Fully aware is correct. Well, and if he is not fully aware, on your theory — the underlying statute didn't begin to run. That, 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 I, I beg to differ, Justice Breyer. It's full awareness is the kind of full awareness that the dissent in Kubrick argued for, which is full awareness of all the elements, including the breach of the duty. We do not argue that the breach of the duty need be discovered for a Strike full aware. I'm sorry? I'm looking for the example where on your theory of the case and at the heart of the statute, which has to do primarily with two things. You've got to have reasonable procedures, et cetera, when you have your agency. And then in the few cases, comparatively, where somebody wants the information about them, you have to give it to them. Okay? That's about basically what it's about. At that heartland of the statute, on your theory, it's hard for me to find examples that would be significant in number where this proviso would be doing any work. That's my problem, and you can respond to that by giving me obvious examples where it would be. Gladly, uh, Justice Breyer. The best example would be the facts in this case, and I'll add some facts to show you how the misrepresentation exception would work. The facts in this case are that the plaintiff's privacy was breached four times between July 1994 and January 1995, and she had no reason to know that until she went to apply for credit in the normal course of her business in May of 1995. Now, immediately upon... And had no cause of action before then. She had no cause of action because she had not suffered any injury as a result of these completely latent privacy breaches. And, in fact, she could have gone to her grave never knowing about them. But because she went out and applied for credit, she found out about them, and she immediately um, asked for and received a consumer file disclosure from TRW, the defendant. Now, TRW, the defendant, in this case, did not misrepresent any facts, did not, for example, conceal those four privacy breaches. Had they done so, however, had they sent back to her a letter which, in which they had concealed the four privacy breaches, then she would still be perhaps, well, she might not even be aware of the injury at that time, but she would certainly, the, the misrepresentation exception at that point in time would be invoked if, in fact, the misrepresentation. You're, what you just swallowed, the words you just swallowed are my problem. If those misrepresentations were material, then she wouldn't have discovered the underlying harm anyway. So you wouldn't have needed the proviso on your theory of the case. Well, there may be, there may well be other misrepresentations that could be made by a credit reporting agency, however, that was, that went to the, their, that were material to their liability. And the fact that, uh, that, uh, those they, they were the examples I was looking for. Mm-hmm. You see, that, you, you put your finger right on where I'm having the problem. Well, perhaps they could give a misrepresentation to the effect that the federal government requires us to use the procedures we use, and they've been deemed reasonable by the federal government or some, in some other way reasonable. Mr. Henderson, you have, from I think your answer to Justice Breyer, uh, pretty well indicated that there would be, even under your view, a large overlap 
where you never get to the misrepresentation exception because the claim never arose in, in your in your view of the case. You stopped yourself in the middle of your answer to him. You gave an answer that suggested that the claim wouldn't accrue anyway, so you'd never get to the misrepresentation exception. And, and I think that uh, a lot turns on that. So I would like you to give I had exactly the problem that Justice Breyer had. I couldn't think of something that wouldn't be covered by your main rule, which is nothing, no liability arises until the person suffers the injury by knows that she suffered the injury. Now, give me an example where she knows she suffered the injury and would have the benefit of the misrepresentation exception. Um. As I sit here, I'm trying to come up with one, but I think that any misrepresentation by the credit reporting agency in response to a, a but, consumer but demand. This, you had time when you wrote your brief to think about this. Yes. And if, if the misrepresentation exception is superfluous on your reading of the statute, that is a powerful reason for us not to agree with you. No, I, I don't believe it's at all superfluous. 